6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's Solomon speaking. From even just the limitations of human wisdom, he concludes that. For God shall bring every work into judgment, and every, with every secret thing, whether it be good, whether it be evil. That's Ecclesiastes 12 near the end. So strangely enough, this book, while it has a very gloomy aspect, it is heading in it to an orderly way, and we'll see that. It's the opposite of pessimism. In Romans, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Jesus died, not just for you and I, because we're not the only things redeemed. The earth is redeemed, and so is, and there's a new heaven and a new earth. So there's much more going on than you and I probably have any capacity to imagine. Now, is this book relevant today? That sounds, gee, that's great, great, Chuck. It's a quaint book, part of the biblical literature, fine. What about today? Well, let's take a look at what Solomon saw, what he's responding to. Injustice to the poor, chapter 4. Crooked politics. Incompetent leaders. Have you ever met any of these? Guilty people who are allowed to commit more crime. You know, the guilty, the innocent get convicted and the guilty go free materialism, and, of course, a desire for the so-called good old days. These are some of the things that Solomon saw, and it becomes pretty obvious as you see his perspective that we're going to get the benefit of his perspective as a guy that God gave wisdom to and one who had all the resources you and I could imagine, more than you and I could even imagine. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. It says in Jerusalem, by the way, that's opposed, by the way, to David, who reigned in both Hebron and Jerusalem, and only Solomon reigned in, only in Jerusalem. And so the king of Israel in Jerusalem implies that he reigned over Israel and Judah combined. David at Hebron reigned over only over Judah, and then not until he settled in Jerusalem, both over Israel and Judah. Anyway, what is worth? Vanity of vanity, saith the preachers, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We'll go through some of the vocabulary in a minute. But uh, we're going to, in effect, be in the, the, this word, Havel, or vanity, is used five times just in this one verse. It means meaningless. And the four of those times, it's a, it's a double repetition of the Hebrew superlative construction, which means the way the, the uh, King James says vanity of vanities, the New International Version says meaningless, meaningless, and utterly meaningless, to get the, try to capture that Hebrew intensive there. And then we're going to have a, a poem, which is going to talk about the ceaseless rounds of the generations of the nature and, and then a poetical conclusion. But, and what profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? The word profit here, or gain, uh, is, uh, refers to what's left over. Uh, uh, and it's metaphorically, in other words, what's advantageous or what's a benefit? And uh, some things uh, 
uh, have advantages over others, obviously. And the phrase under the sun is a very key phrase. It's used 29 times throughout this book. And so the emphasis here is on the what's right in front of us, what's tangible. It doesn't look beyond that. And by not looking beyond that, it gets fairly, it gets pretty, it gets pretty dismal. I think it'll be useful to go over some of these words because they carry the, the whole flavor. I talked about koaleth and ecclesia. Hevel is the word for um, vanity. This word yethron is profit or surplus or gain. Another word that you'll see is amal, which is like wearisome. It means to toil to the point of exhaustion and yet experience little or no fulfillment in your work. We're going to see that word. Out of 11 different choices, that word is used a great deal. And also the word ra, which is translated evil in the King James, but it can mean, it simply means grievous, adversity, misery, that sort of thing. A couple of other things I didn't make a slide on, but I want to bring out is um, whenever Solomon uses the word for God, he uses the word for Elohim 40 different times. He never uses Jehovah or Yahweh or uh, the Tetragrammaton. Um, the Elohim speaks of the mighty God, the creator God, uh, and who exercises sovereign power. The Jehovah phrase is one that speaks of the covenant relationship and the, and the, the, the God of the promise. And that's when you speak of the... You'll notice when you go through your Bible, which word is used. Typically in the translations, the word uh, Jehovah is Lord, all caps, to tip you off, that's the tetragrammaton, the, and it re, it's referring to God in His special relationship with the, in the covenant, and uh, as opposed to Elohim, who as the, God the Creator. It's God the Creator. It's a more distant term that uh, Solomon uses all through here. One of the things that uh, Solomon's going to deal with is the cycles of life. You know, whenever you and I use the term life cycle or the wheel of fortune or things have come full circle. We're joining Solomon and a host of other writers that tend to uh, see uh, a cyclical view of life and nature and so forth. Solomon's going to ponder these questions and look at life under the sun. He came to, he'll come to three bleak conclusions just tentatively up front, that nothing has changed, nothing is new, and nothing is understood. He's going to take a look of what you might call the wheel of nature. He's going to talk about the earth, the sun, the wind, and the water. This almost suggests the classic elements of Aristotle, if you, if you recall, earth, air, fire, and water. One generation passes away, another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. See, nature doesn't change. The earth continues. Man comes and goes is, is, is the emphasis he's making here. He, he's saying that uh, the sun ariseth, the sun goeth down, and hastes the place where he arose. Solomon's perspective here is that things go on independent of man. What he's ignoring is that it doesn't go on independent of God. Uh, God held the sun in place for Joshua, Joshua uh, chapter 10, you may recall. Uh, he moved the sun back as a sign to Hezekiah. We'll see that in uh, Isaiah. He opened the Red Sea and the Jordan River on two different occasions to let the nation go through. He turned off the rain for Elijah for three and a half years. Calmed the wind and for the disciples on the Sea of God. See, God does intervene in uh, probably far more than we have any idea as he intervened. Solomon is indulging in a worldview that a scientist or a cosmologist would call a closed system. It's closed within itself. And the error there is that it's not a closed system. God is outside that and intervenes into it. So it's a, it's a fallacy in logic. So you and I can look at it differently because we can sing a song, This is my Father's World. And we have not only a creator God, 
we have a, a that transcends his creation, but he also has, uh, in a number of times, entered his creation, perhaps most dramatically in the person of Jesus Christ. So we have a, a, a you know, much more enlightened view here. Now it says, one generation pass away, another generation cometh. The, the Hebrew uses participles here, which means one generation is always passing off the scene. Another is always arriving. That's really what the grammar implies. Man is just born to get caught up in the tide and then passes away. But the earth, in contrast, abides forever. And by the way, that's not true. The earth is going to have its end too. The laws of thermodynamics, it's winding down. you got people ringing your doorbell trying to save the planet. Tell them, you can't save the planet. You read ahead and you discover it's going to, it's going to burn. You know, so, But man who is from the earth is short-lived, dies, and uh, but the material from which he was fashioned remains. That's really the, the view that Solomon's preoccupied with here. The sun also riseth, the sun goeth down, and hasteth to the place where he arose. We say, as sure as night follows the day, as, as Shakespeare would say it. But uh, you see, as far as the heavens are concerned, one day is just like another. The heaven remains the same, is the, is the view here. Then he goes on, he says, The wind goeth towards the south, turneth about to the north, it whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. Now you and I would read that poetically and just keep going on. Okay, sure it does, obviously it does. Let, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's only in the relatively recent years that we have a science of meteorology where we've discovered that the wind has circuits. It's not totally random. It has circuits. And it's interesting, but even, even more to the point here, verse 7, all rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. You ever wonder about that? Every map has rivers, you know, going for the mountains, melted snow or rain or whatever, and goes down in the sea. But the sea doesn't get fuller. You ever wonder about that? Solomon, you see, and the place where the rivers come, thither they return again. Now, this really fascinated me for lots of reasons. Um, because <laughs> from ancient times till about 1400 A.D., the concept of the hydrological cycle was speculated on by people. About the time the poet Homer, about 1000 B.C., and philosophers like Thales, Plato, Aristotle in Greece, Lucretius, Seneca, and Pliny in Rome. Most of these conjectures were erroneous from a scientific point of view. The Greek philosopher uh, Naxagoras believed that the sun lifts the water from the sea into the atmosphere, from which it falls as rain, and rainwater is then collected in underground reservoirs that feed through the river flows. That was his concept. Now Solomon here describes this what we call the water cycle, the book of Job, in chapter 36, verse 27 and 28, makes an interesting remark. That, with this verse, gives us our hydrological cycle. Job says, speaking of God, in verse 36, For he maketh small the drops of water. They pour down rain according to the vapor thereof, which clouds do drop and distill upon man abundantly. All the rivers are on the sea, but the sea is not yet full. Under the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. How? By evaporation, clouds, and distilling. And see, you and I take that for granted, but it was the Greek philosopher Theophrastus, and this is about the 4th century B.C., who was credited with correctly describing the hydrological cycle operating in the atmosphere with evaporation and condensation. And it was the Roman architect and engineer Marcus Vitruvius 
who lived about the time of Christ, who by studying the works of Theophrastus, then extended and conceived what's now generally accepted as the theories of the hydrological cycle. Now, what's fascinating to me about this, this, of course, is much earlier, by, you know, a thousand years earlier, and yet it's in the Scripture. One of the things that fascinates me the more I study the Bible, having come from a technological background, is two things. Not only do we find, all laced all through the Scripture, anticipations of discoveries that have been made since. That's part A. And an example of that is Matthew Fontaine Mari, who read in the Psalms and Isaiah that there are pathways in the sea. And he became so fascinated by that as a youth that he became, he joined the Navy in those days, became an oceanographer. He founded the science of oceanography. He got, when he got to power, he, uh, rank enough, he got the ships all collect data. And he, Mari, Matthew Fontaine Mari, is considered by many, many countries, not just America, as the father of oceanography. What's interesting, his preoccupation to discover that there are currents, there are pathways in the sea, was from his study of the scripture. So there's all kinds of, all through the scripture, there's anticipations of scientific discoveries, some amazing ones. But the flip side's also true. What's astonishing about the Bible is you find no errors. That's especially interesting in medicine because Moses was taught by the, had all the wisdom of the Egyptians. You can go through the things that they taught in those days and they're absurd. What's amazing, none of them creep into the scripture. The scripture is clear. Now that doesn't mean there aren't some problem passages that require a little study, but it's amazing to see that uh, as a evidence, if you will. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. Eye is not satisfied with the seeing, nor ear with the filling. That the thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Well, now I have a problem with that. See, he, he's saying if nothing changes, that's his argument, then it's reasonable to conclude that nothing in this world is new. In the days of Solomon, people communicated by a foot messenger. You would travel at the speed of horseback, and you'd be wearing clothing from an agrarian economy. You go several thousand years later to George Washington. He would communicate with foot messenger. He would travel at the speed of horseback. And he was clothed with the uh, with an agrarian economy. But you advance from President Washington to say, our current president, or our, our time, put it that way, we communicate at the speed of light. We travel at the speed of sound. And we wear clothes made of molecules that we've designed. So... And you have to recognize you and I are surrounded by, in fact, dependent upon uh, marvels of science from not only just telephones, pacemakers, miracle drugs, what have you. I can't imagine Solomon somehow watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon and say that nothing is new under the sun. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll deal with that further as we go. So understand, this is Solomon's view. He's making a point, but recognize there's a limit the point he's really trying to make here. Because there obviously are new things, but maybe that new things in another sense. And that's what we'll be getting into. All things are full of labor. And it's better translated, by the way, all things are not full of labor. That's misleading. Are wearisome. That's really the way it should be translated. That all things in life are monotonous and futile is what he's trying to say. No matter where one looks in nature, you find tiresome, 
ceaseless rounds of activity. Man always wants something new. Why? Because everything in this world brings weariness. He's looking to get an escape from that weariness. That was even true in, uh, remember in Acts chapter 17 in Paul's day. The Greeks were spending their time in nothing else but, uh, but either to tell or hear something, some new thing. Man has always been questing new things. And no matter how many new things you get, you're still dissatisfied with life. That's really what Solomon's point is. The entertainment industry thrives on or always questing some kind of new thing, some kind of escape from the, the routine. When we get to chapter 3, Solomon is going to delve into this whole issue. Why are we so dissatisfied with life? And one reason is because God has put eternity in our hearts. And we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 3. August, St. Augustine says, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. This, shape, you know, this God-shaped vacuum idea articulated by Pascal or Augustine has deep, deep roots. And you won't rest with the latest gadgets or the latest entertainment. You'll always be dissatisfied. The only thing you'll be satisfied when you hear the voice of God, when you get to respond to Jesus' invitation, come unto me and I will give you rest, what Jesus says. The thing that, that, that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is no new thing under the sun. Uh, Dr. Ironside said, if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. <laughs> Whatever's new is really, really a, a recombination of the old, because man can't really truly, in the true sense, create anything new. Because yeah, man is not is the creature, not the creator. And that's really what he's trying to get across. And uh, even Thomas Alva Edison, who regarded as one of the great inventors, he pointed out his invention only bringing out the secrets of nature and applying them in the, for the happiness of mankind. Only God can create new things, and when you become a creature in Christ, you are made a new thing. We become new creatures. That's why Romans can say we walk in newness of life. And that's why the psalm can say we sing a new song. We enter God's presence by a new and living way, as the book of Hebrews would say it. And one day, you and I are going to see a new heaven and a new earth. And we probably have no capacity to imagine just how new that's going to be. God says in, in Revelation, Behold, I make all things new, really new. But Solomon goes on, Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new. It hath been already of old, <laughs> old time, which was before us. He says the reason things are seem new is because we have poor memories. <laughs> he says there's no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are... Uh, that are to come with those uh, that uh, shall come after. Solomon wrote uh, about principles here. There's a old couplet that says, Methods are many, principles are few. Methods always change, but principles never do. And that's really what he's dealing with here. Marcus Aurelius, those of you that saw the gladiator know who Marcus Aurelius is, said, They that come after us will see nothing new. They that went before us saw nothing more than we have seen. Painfully true that the ancients have stolen all our best ideas. <laughs> okay, so... And what Psalm, next Psalm is going to argue that what's observable in nature is true, that nothing happens or the done that is really new. They're only apparently new. That's really what he's trying to say. Hegel said it another way. History teaches us that man learns nothing from history. Some examples of, uh, uh, I think that, that most of the commentators make the note that Psalm did not intend by this to deny human creativity, but to deny the complete newness of man's accomplishments. For example, the journey to the moon and the discovery of America are certainly different. Uh, they involve explorations of distance places at, at substantial risks. The invention of dynamite and, and the atomic bomb share the element of being a, a explosive of, of different magnitudes. Uh, 
But the distinctive is that we're doing nothing more than escalating the scale within the boundaries of our restricted environment. We're down to verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I gave my heart to seek and search by wisdom concerning all the things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. He, I gave my heart to seek and to search. He's going to try to get to the root of it by seeking it. He's going to explore it from all sides. That's the search. We're listening here to the wisest of all men, and he's trying to apply his God-given wisdom to the problem. But again, it's, it's his wisdom, not God's. He described life as sore travail, a grievous task in the New King James, that only it fatigues you, that it may be exercised. Now, it's interesting, when God first brought man on the earth, it was not cursed. Much of what we're seeing here is derivative of the fact that we're dealing with a cursed earth. And the day will come. We read earlier, in the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains in Romans 8. And this is one reason why life is so difficult. Now, when the Lord returns, the Lord is going to deliver us from that bondage of decay, from that, from that curse. As myself, as an example, see, I'm created by the image, in the image of God, I'm saved by the grace of God, and I continually, despite all that, complain with the little annoyances in life. But one day, I will be like our Lord Jesus Christ, and for that reason alone, I should now be singing God's praise rather than grumbling about the little annoyances. Psalmist says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And boy, he could say that because he was king, prosperous, could do anything he wanted to. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. And that which is wanting cannot be numbered. This uh, vexation of spirit in verse 14 is not a good translation. A better translation is striving after wind. You're striving after it, you get it, and you discover it's wind. Or feeding upon the wind is another way. And of course, it's a, re it's, it's a reference to the aimlessness, the futility of human activity, which no one can ever seem to lay hold of real satisfaction. One of the great discoveries I think many of us make is you don't get real satisfaction until what you're doing is for other people. Many people get some level of satisfaction by starting to get involved in, in activities where they directly can benefit others, where their focus is on others, not themselves. That's a step. But even there, that has its limitations, has its frustrations. See the workaholic that we're all familiar with, the alcoholic that we're all familiar with, are symptoms of the same thing, running away from reality, living on substitutes. Yes, a career. Uh, yes, and even charitable work can be a substitute. And that bubble illusion someday will burst. And uh, we make harder as we try to escape. Instead of running away from life, we should run to God and let Him make life worth living. Most of the commentators that digress on this also end up talking, one of the ultimate doors of escape is suicide. Uh, some specialists indicate that we have about 40,000 persons that commit suicide every year in, the, in this country. For each one of those, there's about 10 that make an attempt. And I can speak to that. 
I won't get morbid and dwell on it all, but there was a time when uh, everything we had built crumbled. That we had many, many millions of dollars of assets. We had, we were on top of the world, and through some circumstances, <laughs> we facing bankruptcy. And uh, the insight there is that finances is just a small part of it. Identity is a great deal part of it. And I can remember vividly, we lived up in the mountains, I can remember vividly driving down the long road down the mountains to the city where we were engaged in various things. And as I drove down that mountain, I realized I still had, despite all the other problems, I had a $5 million key man policy on me that would solve everybody's problems. And I can remember so vividly driving down that road, mountain road, in which every oncoming car was an opportunity. And I hope I never forget that feeling. I remember, too, on April 30th of that following year, when that policy expired, it was like a load was taken off. It took away my excuses. But that was not a mood I went through for a day or two. That was almost a year when I found myself dwelling on that kind of escape. And there's only one thing, really, that kept me from doing something stupid. And that was the realization that God's in control. He's either in control or not. And uh, I wasn't about to take away his control with my self-will. And I think I found that in my life, almost every day, God finds a different way to ask the question, do you trust me? And I'll never forget that, uh, that, that era when we went through that dark valley. And uh, I remember hearing on the radio Christian singer saying, that God, as, as in the voice of God saying, I will be with you, for that's who I am. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your prayerful continued support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.